want to uh, invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one of the pew Bibles in front of you in the pew racks and turn to page 1127. Uh, last Sunday, we began considering John's prologue, and we looked at the opening four verses and thought about Jesus as the Word. It's the primary metaphor in the opening verses of John. God is speaking to the world in and through his Son. He is the self-communication of God the Father to this world. Jesus is the Word, and we saw that he is the divine Word, the creative Word, and the illuminating Word. And this morning, we're going to jump from the beginning of John's prologue to the end and focus today on verses 14 through 18. But before we do so, let's pause and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would hear and believe your word. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. Uh, We'll pick up the reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. Let's hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, I love this time of the year. Um, I love our family's Christmas traditions. I love Christmas dinners and Christmas cookies probably more than I should. Um, I love seeing uh, many faces here this Sunday morning and tomorrow evening that we don't ordinarily have the opportunity to see. 
I love Christmas movies to take Karis to her first movie theater experience this year to see the new Grinch movie. She doesn't quite fit in the movie theater seats yet, so they throw her back, but uh, she sat on one of our laps the entire time. I love, I love this season and all that's uh, associated with it, but for some of us, the holiday season can be a time of, of profound grief and sorrow and sadness, uh, the dysfunction of our family life looms large and we can't avoid it. Um, perhaps this holiday season ushers in uh, memories that are a cause of pain. Or maybe many of you here today during the holiday season sense a profound loss of a loved one. You miss them throughout all of the year, but it's especially pronounced this holiday season. For others of you, it might just be the, the hustle and bustle of the holiday season that has you stressed out and you're exhausted and Christmas hasn't even come yet. Whether we're, whether we're feeling excited about or dreading the holiday season, I think John puts our attention right where it needs to be today and indeed every day of our lives on, on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the God-man. And so whether you're happy or sad, whether you're rejoicing or mourning, whether you're exciting, excited or dreading this holiday season, John is pointing us to the one great reality to which we all need to draw our attention to. Uh, he is drawing our minds to focus upon the God-man. He is engaging our affections to adore the Lord made flesh for our salvation. And so today I want to fix our minds and... Um, cultivate our affections and fixate our hearts upon this one foundational, substantial, central fact of the coming, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, John helps us here by giving us, I think, three anchors for our faith. He talks to us, first of all, about Jesus' identity, who he is, Secondly, he talks to us about Jesus' historicity, that he is. And thirdly, Jesus' ministry, what he came to do. That's where I want us to focus our attention today. Jesus' identity, who he is. Jesus' historicity, that he is. And Jesus' ministry, what he came to do. So let's think about the first thing there. Jesus' identity, who he is. John speaks of Jesus' identity and verse 14 and in verse 18, in two distinct yet complementary ways. Uh, in verse 14, he speaks to us about the, the true humanity of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, the focus falls upon the perfect deity of Christ. True humanity, perfect deity. Let's think first of all about his humanity in, in verse 14. The word became flesh. The word who in verse 1 of John's gospel was identified as God. All things came into being by his agency and, and mediation. And then in verse 3, I want you to notice something about grammar here. As John uses it in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 10, and in verse 12. John uses the same Greek verb 
to describe the coming into to being of the world, of the coming of John the Baptist, of believers becoming the children of God. So verse 3, the world came, and later John the Baptist came, and then later believers become the children of God. The same verb is used each and every time. And then you get to verse 14, and it's used of the word. Now, think about this, the eternal word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God, who, was, who brought all things into being. The one by whom all creation takes its being. That one, John is saying, became what he had never been before. The one who created all things became flesh. And John, John isn't saying that the coming of Jesus simply meant that he took on the appearance of, of our humanity. No, John is saying something Deeper than that, he, he became flesh. He didn't simply inhabit a body like a set of clothes that he put on for a season that he would later take off. Uh, he's, he's saying, I think, that when Jesus was born, the person who was and remained still, the eternal word, the one begotten, the only begotten son of the father, Filling, filling the universe, uh, up, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That same one was the one who was held helpless, vulnerable, weak, and crying in the arms of the Virgin Mary. And so John is declaring the, the, the mystery of the incarnation in these few words. That in the womb of the Virgin Mary... By the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, eternal deity and the frailty of our humanity were brought together in union in the one person, our our Lord Jesus Christ, permanently, irrevocably. Now, let's add some things to that. Not, Not mixed together as if the deity and the humanity come together to form this sort of third category, something new altogether. Not a union that in some way, uh, some way causes a change in the divine nature of Christ, nor a union that would compromise the genuine humanity of our human nature. Uh, but as our catechism, how's our catechism puts it? Jesus became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and in one person forever. You see, the incarnation, the incarnation means that Christ took to himself a true human body. We sometimes speak about the the miraculous birth of Christ, but of course that's inaccurate, isn't it? The, The real miracle occurred in the conception of Christ. But from his conception onward, he had a perfectly normal human development from from, uh, from, from zygote to, to fetus, to infant child, to adolescent, to adult. And so when John uses the expression of, of flesh, he's, he's writing in shorthand here for all that belongs to our human nature. Not, not just a body as though became flesh uh, means that uh, he, he's merely a, a body in an, an empty shell. I hesitate to use the illustration here, but I think of a snail. 
It's, it's not as though, you know, the, 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 the shell is our human nature inhabited by deity within that shell. That's not what John is saying. He assumed a true body and a reasonable soul. So all that Christ, all that is human, Christ became. And all that is human, Christ remains eternally. And that means, dear friends, that means normal human emotion Normal human intellect, normal human will, normal human personality. Because every faculty that belongs to the human soul and is essential to the definition of a human being belongs to Christ without sin. And so in verse 14, when we are told the word became flesh, see, John is declaring to us this incredible reality of the totality of human nature in every respect without sin. That is what the word became. Now, I want just for a moment to, this might be a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but I wonder if you've ever thought along these lines. I want you to connect this reality of the word becoming flesh with Christ's call to discipleship. You know, when, when Jesus calls us to trust in him and follow him, he demands nothing less than absolute surrender. He calls us to stop living life on our own terms, by our own desires, and to live life on his terms and what he desires for us. There is, there is no part of my life that is not touched by the claims of Christ's lordship. And yet we're seeing here in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the, the one who makes these absolute claims on our lives is at the same time one who has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. One who, who knows what it's like to live in the weakness and the limitations of our humanity. It, 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 he is one who has been touched with our, our frailty, our, our sorrows, our, our losses, our griefs, our pain. He has even tasted death for us. That's what John is saying in this phrase, the word became flesh. He became exposed to the possibility of all of those things. He became a, a man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man who was tempted by Satan and the world to abandon the will of his heavenly father. One whose body was beaten and bruised and abused. One whose body was pierced for our transgression. So you see the, the one who claims absolute lordship over your life. If we can put it this way. Is one who knows. One who knows you. One who knows your experience. One who is able to sympathize with you. You see, the call to Christian discipleship, here's one of the things the incarnation means for the call of Christ. The call of Christian discipleship is not a call to submit your life to an abstract set of philosophical principles. It's not a call to submit your life to some abstract philosophy. It is a call to submit your life to a person who knows and sympathizes and who is able to help you because in the economy of God's salvation, he has been made the perfect savior for his people. He has, he has fathomed every depth. He has walked through every valley. He has gone through 
the shadows. He has even gone through the valley of the shadow of death after facing the worst that hell could give him. And so when Jesus summons you to submit your life to him, dear friends, I hope you see you can do it gladly because in him you have a sympathetic savior, a high priest who, has, who, who is not unable, as the Hebrews puts it, who is not unable to sympathize with you in your weakness, but who has been tempted and tested in every part, yet without sin. I, I hope... I hope that highlights for us how delightful discipleship is for the heart that begins to grasp the wonder of the word made flesh, the wonder of the incarnation and what it means to follow after the God man. And so verse 14, it focuses our attention on the word's true humanity, but I need to, I need to move here and then go to verse 18 because it turns our attention to his perfect deity. Uh, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, or as another translation reads, and I think here more accurately, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him, or he has made him known. This is where the language of the creeds comes from. This is where the best of Christmas hymnody gets its language from God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God begotten, not created. You know that hymn. And John is saying those things here. Jesus is God. He is the only begotten son of the father. You know, we we were all of us uh, begotten by our parents, and if, we were, if we're Christians, uh, begotten by the, the, the Word and the Holy Spirit. Our, our begottenness had a beginning. But, but Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. In other words, John is not describing uh, the origin of the Word here. He is describing the relation of the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son of God, to his father. The father has always had a son, and the son has always delighted in his father within the blessed bonds of the Holy Spirit. As John is highlighting here the the heart-to-heart fellowship between the father and son as the son dwelled in the, the bosom of his father in the bonds of the spirit from eternity. And of course, Uh, Verse 14 and verse 18, as we think about these two verses, are speaking about the same person. The the one word. The the one and same Christ. There aren't two Christs that John is talking about here. There's only one. Truly man in the fullness of our humanity, yet fully almighty God. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Jesus Christ, John is saying, the word made flesh. This man of Galilee is the Lord of glory. This this Jew crucified on a cross is none other than Jehovah. That's what John is telling us here. That Jesus Christ we worship is God. We do not merely admire him as 
a remarkable man or an incredible moral teacher. We adore him as the God-man. That's who Jesus is. It's his identity. And then secondly, let's, let's think a little bit about Jesus' historicity. That he is, the, the fact of the God-man. Uh, the reality of the word made flesh, I think, is emphasized in our passage in two ways. First, verse 15, coming to John the Baptist's ministry, the, the gospel is highlighting the, the concrete historical stage on which the miracle of the incarnation occurred. Right? So that the union of perfect deity with true humanity took place in real time, in a real place, among real people. This, this, isn't, this isn't Christmas mythology on par with Santa and the Christmas elves. And so you can imagine then John the Baptist, when he, when he beholds the, the Lord Jesus Christ saying, pointing to Jesus, standing there, bearing witness to this fact about him, this is him. This is the one to whom I spoke to you about. The one who ranks before me because he was before me. You see, verse, verse 14 and verse 18 tell us about the, the coming of Christ from, from one perspective. From the point of view of, of heaven. The, the eternal word made flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But now verse 15, it's describing the very same reality from a different perspective. From if I could put it this way, Earth's point of view, from someone who has their boots on the ground, and John the Baptist's announcement, it's, it's like headline news. It's breaking news. Here he is. This is the one, as he'll say later in this same chapter, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I spoke. And so John is saying that the coming of Jesus is real and true. Just like the other Gospels, they are grounding the coming of Christ, not in mythology, but in history. They're saying it's a fact of history that can be placed on a, a, a historical timeline. Okay, these events not in any, any real order here, but you think of you know, Egyptian dynasties, the, the sack of Rome, the American Revolution, World Wars I and II, and the birth of Christ. That's what, that's what John is saying. It is, it is objective truth, which means that the, the Christian faith and the Christian gospel is irreducibly historical and therefore cannot be uh, dismissed from the public sphere into the realm of private subjective feelings. Here's the thing. It cannot be true for me and not true for you. You cannot say of the Lord Jesus, well, that's just your opinion about him, but that's not how I feel. And it simply won't work to say that science and history are grounded in the object, objective facts of Christianity uh, or, or, or uh, the objective facts while Christianity is grounded in subjective feelings. So, so John is affirming that the, the coming of Jesus, it's a fact of history, it's it's as true as the theory of relativity and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the word became flesh and walked among us, and therefore, it is a fact that demands to be reckoned with by everyone 
everywhere. We, we proclaim him not because our motivation is, well, you know, this works for us and maybe it will work for you. We proclaim him because he really came and he really lived and he really died and he really rose again and he really reigns. And everyone everywhere needs to know it. It's true for me and it's true for you. It's true for each and every one of your family members. It's true if you're, you're white or black or whatever. It's true if you live in Johnstown, Pennsylvania or you're a, a, a Muslim living in Istanbul, Turkey. It's true if you live in, uh, you're, you're a Hindu living in India or a Taoist living in Japan. It's true for me and it's true uh, for you. And the historical fact of the incarnation of the Son of God and the crucifixion and resurrection and reign of Jesus, you see, it compels us to tell the world because it is literally world-changing, life-altering truth. You know, no wonder then when John sees Jesus and says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This isn't just for people living in Palestine. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for the peoples of the world. A world living in rebellion against God. And what a wonder then. This is... I think a convicting wonder is that people who, who share the same conviction as John the Baptist can remain silent before the world regarding this Christ. How, dear friends, how easily we become accustomed to the old news of the God-man. But it is headline news. It's, it's more significant than government shutdowns. It's more important than international relations. Not trying to say those things aren't important, you understand. But it is more important, more life-altering than any of those things that take up the headline news each and every day. And it's headline news that ought to thrill our hearts and compel us from, from this building and to the ends of the world to say to people, we have, we have news for you. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And so Jesus is the central fact of, of world history. History is centered around the birth, life, death, resurrection, and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of history. But John is saying more than that here in these, in these verses because he goes beyond that to say that Jesus is also the, the center of, of salvation history, of redemptive history, of Bible history. And you see that here in verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And another translation, another way of reading that would be to say, from him we receive grace replacing grace. Old grace giving way to new grace. In light of verse 17, I think it's clear John means that the grace of one error of salvation history giving way to another. The grace of a fuller era. The, the grace that came through Moses giving way to its fulfillment in the new covenant by Jesus Christ. So the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Of course, John isn't saying that there wasn't grace and truth being revealed through the Mosaic administration. Instead he's saying what Moses promised. Jesus performed. 
what was typified in Moses is brought to full reality in Jesus. So John's point is that Jesus is not just the central fact of history. He is the central reality of salvation history, of Bible history. And that means that the coming of the God-man is the central key that enables you to make sense of the entire Bible. It is the key that unlocks the scriptures and shows how they all hang together so that if you don't take this key with you, when you go to read the Bible, you will miss the entire point. I think the sad reality is, is that many people who read the Bible don't see that Jesus is indeed the center of the story of the Bible. You know, we go to the Bible for all kinds of reasons. We go for a spiritual experience. Sadly, today, I think perhaps because of wrong teaching or perhaps because people haven't been taught, they approach the Bible looking for a word, as they're focusing on Scripture, a word in addition to the Bible. They're, they're going to the Bible for advice about parenting, political theory, economic theory, uh, dating, or, or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have something to, to say about those topics, but rather, what I'm trying to say is that the burden of the Bible is John 1.29. The burden of the whole Bible, the grace of the old covenant and the grace of the new, the, the burden of the Bible, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ shines on every page. Grace upon grace for you from Genesis to Revelation. That's John's point. Central to history, central to biblical history. Don't don't miss that, or you will miss the entire message of the Bible given by God the Father to reveal his heart for a lost and needy world in the person of his Son. And so the, the identity of Christ, the historicity of Christ, and then thirdly, the ministry of Christ. Why did he come? You know, what, what did he come to do? Two really quick answers here. Go back to verse 14 again. We learn here that though we can't get to God, in Christ, God has come to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, the word is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. It's the word used of the tent of meeting and later the temple where, where God met with Israel and dwelled among and fellowshiped with his people. His, his glory was shining around and atonement and sacrifice and Priestly ministry was provided for the people of God in this place. And John is saying to us that there is still a tent of meeting whose doors are open to all who would fellowship with God. And it's Jesus Christ. Here, here is where uh, God meets with people, where he provides everything that is needed and necessary to have fellowship with God. And it's not a place, it's a person. In the word made flesh, in him there is access. You see, John, John knows that 
not one of us could merit our way into the presence of God, but the good news of the gospel is that God has come to you in Jesus so that you can know him and that you can be with him. And the second thing we see here about the the ministry of Christ, it's in verse 18 again. We're, We're told that although we cannot see God, that in Christ God makes himself known. So the ministry of Christ is to make the Father known. Look again at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Some translations say no one has understood God, known God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, in the the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or he has made him known. Christ has come to make the Father known. See, the, the word John uses is the word from which we get our word exegesis. That's a word I guess you only hear if you go to seminary, so don't worry about it. Jesus exposits the heart of the Father. That's what John is saying. Jesus explains to you who the Father is. He reveals to you the heart of the Father for a lost, sinful, and dying world. Jesus is the self-communication of the Father. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Father speaking to you, John is saying. So you want to know what God is like? God hasn't left it to, well, I feel like God is this way. God has definitively revealed himself in the person of his Son so that it's not left to speculation or guessing or feelings. John is saying, you want to know God? You want to, you, you, what, what do you do? You, you get to know what he's like by looking to Jesus Christ who makes the Father known. Who explains the Father. Look, look at his life. Listen to his teaching. Gaze upon his cross. Learn to discern the Father's heart for you in the person and work of his Son whom he sent To reveal himself. See John is saying behold. Behold your God. By the end of his gospel. Behold your God with nail marks. And his hands and feet. The word made flesh. And as you gaze into the glory. Of God radiating. In the face of Jesus Christ. Doesn't doesn't it cause you. To to wonder. I mean if, if you are already. Someone who trusts in Christ. As you reflect upon what John is saying here in these verses. Doesn't it make you want to throw yourself down on your face before this Jesus. And surrender everything to him. And as you maybe have yet to trust in Christ. As you reflect upon what John is saying in this passage. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is Opening your eyes to catch a glimpse of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it beckon you to turn from your utter bankruptcy and bow down before this Jesus? Because the reality is, dear friends, in and of ourselves, every one of us here is spiritually bankrupt. And we have nothing, nothing to commend ourselves to God. 
nothing to merit ushering ourselves into the presence of God to enjoy eternal fellowship with him. But John is saying God has given his son to usher you into his presence where you will be brought into the blessed fellowship of the triune God knowing the very same love that the eternal Son of God has enjoyed from all eternity. The Son has come to reveal that love for the children of God. And he invites us to come to the Word made flesh who is perfect deity and true humanity in one person. He is the central fact of history. He is He is the hinge upon which every human soul turns. And he's come, you see, sent to reveal God to you, to explain God to you, to exposit the heart of the Heavenly Father, a God of grace who welcomes sinners, dead sinners, to find life in him who is the light of the world. Let's uh, pray together. Thank you, Father, that you've you've given us your Son, uh, your only Son, the Son whom you love. What an expression of love you have revealed to us, to wretched, undeserving sinners in the gift of the God-man. Now, Lord, we surrender our claim to personal lordship and we bow before this Lord Jesus and we lay our crowns at his feet and we pray that our lives would be given over to him in love and worship and in service. Lord Jesus, be honored here in our midst and we pray all of these things for your sake. Amen.